in all of them. Well, we, we just went through the Gospel of John and I don't recall one being in the Gospel of John. And then there's not one in the Gospel of Mark either. So we only have the nativity story in two of them, Matthew and Luke. Thank you, Lee, for reminding me of that right before I came up, just so I wouldn't actually get that wrong. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to dive in here together. As we are preparing, one of, the, one of the hardest things as Christ followers, I think, is keeping, keeping Christmas and Easter fresh in our minds. I mean, just the audacity of what we're actually talking about. It's so easy to trample over it and then just kind of get caught up in, well, we, this is what we do every year. And we tell the same stories and quite honestly, they just become so familiar that they lose their power. In a lot of ways. And so what we have been attempting to do and what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is trying to approach Christmas from slightly different perspectives so that we can see it um, f- from fresh eyes. Lewis, can you turn me down just a little bit, please? Thank you. Um, so last week we took a look at Jesus or I'm sorry, we took a look at the nativity story or the gospel, the Christmas story through the eyes of Mary. This week we're going to take a look at it through someone whose life was just as impacted, but is by far less the focus in Christmas, and that is Mary's fiancé, a guy named Joseph. It's funny, I wasn't going to mention this, but Kathy and I got our kids one of those um, little people nativity sets. You know, it's got the stable, it's got all of the wise men, they're all children. But anyway, we got it for our kids. We got two Marys, but no Joseph in it. Yeah, try explaining that to my kids. I'm like, well, somebody in Berkeley obviously got a job putting these things together. And so anyway, they're sending us a new set of, of little people so that we can have the full Christmas story and Joseph can be represented. But it's interesting that Joseph is just as much in this. I mean, he's the fiance to Mary. He goes through the whole process of preparing for the birth and then ultimately is a father to Jesus. And yet we don't talk about him very much. Part of the reason is there's no, he never actually speaks. He's not recorded in any of the gospel messages. That's not to say he doesn't talk. It's just that he was never recorded in any of these gospels, and so we don't tend to focus a lot of energy on him. But he was central to this whole thing. He was an eyewitness to the whole Christmas story. And what I want to do this morning is I want to dive into the Christmas story from Joseph's perspective. We, knew, we know a few things about him. For instance, we know that Joseph was a Jewish man from the line of David. In fact, he was from the kingly line. And we know this because Matthew opens his gospel with 17 verses in which he is going step by step through Joseph's lineage, through, through his um, genealogy. Now, why is this significant? Because at least for Matthew, his whole purpose in writing his gospel message is to prove that Jesus was the rightful Messiah and the rightful King of Israel. And in order to show that, he wants to show that you can draw a line directly from Abraham all the way through King David. And remember, God had said to David, you will have someone on the throne for all of eternity. There will be a king and his throne will never be uprooted. Jesus ultimately fulfilled that promise and Matthew is showing us that he has a right to that throne through Joseph, his adopted father. 
So that's one thing we know about Joseph is that he was from the line of David. The second thing we know about Joseph is that he was born in Bethlehem down in Judea, pretty close to Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of Jewish life during that time. However, he moved from Bethlehem about 90 miles north to this little Galilean backwater called Nazareth, kind of off the beaten path, separated from the, you know, kind of the hubbub of Jewish life by this area called Samaria that most Jews didn't tend to go to. So there's a lot of separation not the place that you would ever expect the Messiah to come from. That meant that when Caesar said, I want to do a census, I want all of my people to go to their hometowns in order to register, Joseph had to pack Mary, who was about ready to pop, and travel 90 miles south back to Bethlehem. We'll talk a little bit more about the significance in a little bit. The third thing we know about Joseph is that he was a carpenter by trade. This is how he made his living, this carpentry. We also know that Joseph didn't make a lot of money doing that. Well, how do we know that? Because when he and Mary took Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, one of the things they would do is they, you would sacrifice a lamb. As the firstborn child, you would sacrifice a lamb, basically saying, God, I dedicate this child to you, but ultimately, well, I won't go into the whole theology there, but typically you would sacrifice a lamb. If you could not afford a sacrificial lamb, it was stated by law that you could instead sacrifice two turtle doves. And that's what Mary and Joseph did. So we know that they didn't have a lot of money. They weren't wealthy. They weren't prosperous. We also know that Joseph is is pretty faithful. He is a man who follows God. Now we're going to see that more today, so we'll go into that in a little bit. The last thing that we know, or at least we think about Joseph, Theologians and scholars believe that he, like Mary, was probably a teenager, which makes this story more powerful. We don't know that for certain, but we believe that's the case. And so we'll pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We read, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. In this culture, what would happen is, you know, boys and girls who were interested in one another wouldn't date and and that kind of a thing. Instead, parents would come together and go, you know, I think my son and your daughter would be a really good fit. It would be good for our families. So why don't we kind of betroth them to one another? And ultimately, the son and daughter would be promised to one another. And when they said, okay, we're pledged to one another, at that moment, even though they were not married even though they had not consummated their marriage, were not living together, in the eyes of the law, they were united as one. And if that couple did not want to be married, they would actually have to go through a divorce proceeding. So it's kind of like an engagement on steroids, right? It's a much, much more intentional, much more legally binding engagement. And during that often year in between the betrothal, the pledgeship, And the actual wedding, that time would be spent often planning a a week-long wedding. It would also be time spent for the husband to go and prepare the home that he and his wife are going to live in. Oftentimes that meant building kind of an extension off of his parents' house. Um, It would also be a time of preparation, a a time of kind of remaining, getting ready for this. But, But then all of a sudden Mary comes up to Joseph. And I can only imagine what this 
conversation look like? Mary comes up to Joseph and goes, I need to tell you something. (laughs) Um, I'm pregnant, but I want you to know I'm still a virgin. And then she drops this on him. God did it. Okay? <laughs> okay? And, and, and for a second, I want us to put, try to put ourselves in Joseph's sandals for just a second and kind of go, what must he have been thinking? Right? Okay, so you mean to tell me that you have a baby in you, but, but you're still a virgin, and God is the Father. Now, I'm sure that there was a part of him that wanted to believe her. I mean, this is... This was the woman he was planning on spending the rest of his life with. Wanted to believe her, but in the back of his mind, he's like, God? Why us? Even if that were true, why would he choose us? Do you see? We we live in Galilee, in Nazareth. I'm a carpenter. Probably a better reason for this whole thing is that Mary has been promiscuous. She, She has been messing around, and it wasn't with me. Know that for a fact. And she thinks I'm gullible enough to believe that God did this. And now this is going to severely impact us from a social standpoint. I can't even begin to think about what people are going to say that my fiance is pregnant. We're not married. I I can't marry her. I'm going to, to. basically solidifying people's minds that I'm responsible for this, but at the same time, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to throw her under the bus. I don't want to drag her before the magistrates and, and, and say, she's you know, been unfaithful to me be, just to clear my name. I'm not that kind of a guy. I, I don't know what was going on in Joseph's mind, but we do know from verse 19 how Joseph wrestled with this. And it says that because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. According to the law of Moses, if, if somebody who was engaged to be married was found to have been unfaithful, they were an adulterer or an adulteress. And the punishment of adultery, according to the law of Moses, was death by stoning. That was kind of the, the harshest response to it. It's not necessarily what would have had to happen, but that would have been the response. Joseph doesn't want to go there. But he is a man who obeys the law of Moses, who respects it. He also recognizes that this woman that he has been pledged to be married to seems to, on the surface, have been unfaithful to him. And he does not want to go through with living a a charade and, and, and whatnot. And so he He decides, I no longer can marry this woman, but I don't want to throw her under the bus. I don't want to destroy her life. I don't want to publicly humiliate her if only to clear my name. He's a man of compassion and mercy. He doesn't want to punish her. And so he decides in his mind, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to divorce her quietly. We're going to go our separate ways. The story doesn't end there. Verse 20. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Consider for a second what Joseph must have been feeling when he woke up from that dream. First off, the angel has just corroborated Mary's story. And I'm sure that there was a part of him that felt relief. My goodness, she was telling the truth. This child really is from God. She wasn't lying to me. Wait a minute, does that mean that I'm the one who has to apologize for this? Right? (laughs) Okay. But on on, on the flip side, so there's probably some relief, but on the flip side, the gravity of what this means begins to sink in for Joseph. This child is from God. He's the son of God. (laughs) Why would he? Why would he choose me to be the... Why would he choose us? I mean, we're just a couple of kids from some podunk town in Galilee. I'm a carpenter. I don't know the first thing about being the father. How can I raise the son of God? I'm, I'm a carpenter. What do I have to offer to raise the future king of Israel? The gravity of what that must have entailed must have been heavy for Joseph. Now, all of this is conjecture because the Bible doesn't actually speak to it. I can only imagine the swirl of emotions that were going on for him. What we do know, however, is how Joseph responded. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. When Joseph wakes up, he automatically responds in obedience. He kind of speeds up the marriage process and says, we're getting married. We're going to do this. I'm going to walk with you through this. And they get married. And at this point, there's a cost involved to that. Because from a social standpoint, people must have begun chirping. Oh, The rumor mill starts to spin, right? Oh, Joseph and Mary had to speed up their wedding process. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Oh, yeah, you know, they're saying that God is a father. Right, okay, sure. But Joseph marries her anyway. Because apparently he was more concerned with obeying God than he was being concerned about what other people thought about him. He feared God more than he did their opinions. And so he submitted Furthermore, he waited to consummate the marriage until Jesus had been born. Now, this is significant because he wanted to preserve the sanctity and, and the, the divine origin of this child. He, he didn't want any question to be out there. Now, people are going to talk. People are going to suggest other things. But he and Mary knew. And he didn't want to tarnish that in any way, shape, or form. And so he waited. And then thirdly, and I think this is beautiful, it is Joseph who ultimately gives Jesus his name. Why does this matter? Well, first off, God chose the name Jesus and said, this is what you're to name, my son. And Jesus means the Lord saves. 
because God was planning on saving mankind through Jesus. God bless you. He was planning on redeeming mankind from sin and, it, and death that ultimately comes through sin. But more than that, he was planning on saving mankind back into relationship with him. Through Jesus, we no longer are defined by what we've done. We are defined by what he has done for us. And so we can have a relationship with God even though we have screwed up, even though we have rebelled, even though we have fallen radically short. So that's why Jesus' name is symbolic and is powerful. But... According to Jewish custom, it was only the father who was able to name the son. It was both his right, but also his responsibility. And in Joseph naming Jesus, he was more or less saying, I will be his father. In his mind, and from a legal standpoint, he was saying, this is my son. I take ownership. I will take responsibility. Regardless of whether he felt up to the task, Regardless of whether he felt like he could do it or he was the right man for the job, he submitted to God's plan. He said, okay, I'm in. Now, there was nothing spectacular about Joseph. If you had a stack of resumes of all the guys who were available in that day and age who could have been the father of the Messiah, Joseph probably never would have even been close to the top. I mean, he, he didn't have the pedigree. He didn't have any sort of a, a political or... or you know, noble pedigree. He was a carpenter. There was nothing about him that would have made you say, hey, this is going to be a great guy, except that God does not look at our resume. He looks at our heart. And it's there that Joseph really shined. Because he wasn't spectacular, but he was faithful. He was obedient. When God said, this is what I want you to do, he obeyed, he responded. Furthermore, he wasn't just obedient but he was compassionate. He was grace-filled and merciful. Even when he thought that Mary had somehow been unfaithful to him, he wasn't out to hurt her or punish her, just to clear his name. He was a man after God's heart. And I do not believe that he was some accidental character in this Christmas story. Because just as much as God wanted a woman who was humble enough to submit to his purpose and his plans and to raise his son. He wanted a man who was strong enough, faithful enough, but also humble enough to submit his plans to what God wanted and to be the father of his son. And apparently he did a pretty good job of it because I, I love this quote from Ray Pritchard. He writes, when Jesus grew up and began his ministry, he chose one word above all others to describe what God was like. He called him Father. But where did he learn that from? Where did he learn about what it meant to be a father? From Joseph. Whenever we approach God's word, I, I often kind of ask the question, so what? What can we learn from this story that happened a couple thousand years ago? What, how does this translate into today? What can we learn from the fact that God included Joseph in his Christmas story? 
couple of things. First off, we learn that God does not simply choose those who are worthy. I mean, think of Joseph is one in a long line of men and women throughout the Bible who were anything but worthy. I think of David, the youngest son of Jesse's. When Samuel the prophet came looking for the future king of Israel, Jesse begins to pray to all of his sons in front of him. He forgets that David is even his kid. Samuel goes, do you have any other kids? And he goes, well, there's my youngest, David, out in the fields. You want to bring him before me too? Because ultimately God doesn't look at the external. He looks at the heart. Or I think about the, I think about the disciples. A ragtag group of guys, most of whom were uneducated, who were anything but perfect. They made mistakes all over the place. And yet, Jesus not only invited them into his his inner circle, he not only walked with them and trained them up, but ultimately he said, you guys are going to be my representatives. You're going to be my ambassadors. You are going to continue the ministry that I have begun. And it was through them that the early church began to take root and flourish. And then you have Joseph and Mary, two teenagers from some backwater in Galilee that he chooses to raise his son, who would ultimately become the savior of mankind, the Messiah. That's huge. And I love this. You don't need to turn here, but if you want, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that God tends to choose unexpected people to bring about his will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, it's also in your notes. He writes this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world in order to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not in order to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In other words, God doesn't just choose people who have the pedigree. He doesn't just go after people who the society goes, man, now that is the kind of person that we should follow. Saul was one of those guys. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, but he was not the best king of Israel. Instead, they chose some shepherd kid named David. And he he was a man after God's own heart. And we talk a lot in our community about the fact that when we say yes to Jesus, we are not only ushered back into an intimate relationship with God, but that we are actually commissioned to now be his representatives, his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. And I don't doubt that many of us hear that and go, that's great, but man, you have no idea who I am. I am so not worthy to be God's representative. And may I humbly be the first to say, you're right, you're not. (laughs) But neither am I. Neither is Lee. Neither are any of us. 
every single one of us has screwed up. Every single one of us has lived in rebellion against God. Every single one of us has fallen far short of his holy standard. And we are the last people who should be representing God. And yet, because of what Jesus has done for us, he says, you are my son. You are my daughter, whom I love, whom I have endowed with unique skills, gifts, and, and, and even just given you a bent in your heart that, that desires certain things. And I want you to use those things to build up the body of Christ. I want you to use those gifts to glorify me. Because of what Jesus has done, we who are unworthy are declared worthy. It's a wonderful thing. However, the second thing we learn about Joseph, and I want to caution us, if and when God uses us, it's probably not going to be when or the circumstances may not necessarily be what we expect, and the timing probably won't, won't be what we would have chosen. Think about Joseph and Mary. Neither of them, I mean, they, they were both like, God, your will be done. Have your way with me. However, neither of them would have chosen for Mary to get pregnant when they were still engaged. And as her stomach begins to swell and the rumor mill begins to spin into the stratosphere, Neither of them would have chosen that. Neither of them would have chosen for Caesar to decree that they had to travel to their hometowns right when Mary's about ready to pop. So they have to make that trek 90 miles in the dead of winter. Neither of them would have chosen to get there late. Probably it took them a long time because Mary probably wasn't traveling very quickly. So they get there late. There are no more rooms available. They have to stay in some barns surrounded by a menagerie of stinky animals. Neither of them would have chosen that. So from a human standpoint, when, if and when God uses us, it will not necessarily look like what we would have chosen for our lives. It will not necessarily look like our timing. And yet God uses everything. Some of you are struggling with things like cancer. Parkinson's, depression, anxiety. You wouldn't have chosen it. You wouldn't have chosen the heartbreak that you're carrying around because of choices that people have made in your life and the brokenness of relationships. Some of you wouldn't have chosen the pain that you've witnessed with your children or the loss that you've experienced with your parents. Life does not necessarily go according to our plan. And yet, God is sovereign, and he can use even the brokenness of this world to glorify himself. I mean, he reminded his disciples, Jesus said, listen, in this world you're going to have trouble. But you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome the world. And even the pain that you witness the pain that you experience, the brokenness in your life does not have to get the last word. And in fact, I can glorify myself through it. Or I think of what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12. Listen, no, no discipline is comfortable. It's painful. But it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those of us who are trained up by it, for those of us who can lean into it and allow the Holy Spirit to refine and sharpen us through that process. So it's not comfortable. 
but it can be fruitful in our lives if we allow God to use that both to grow us and to glorify himself. And the early church, and I'm totally going off script here, but I think about the early church, and I think about why the early church grew so radically quickly. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit was working powerfully through them. I mean, you have, what, 3,000 people coming to know Christ on the day of Pentecost simply because the disciples are out there proclaiming the gospel in a lot of different languages and people are cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit is speaking to them through those imperfect disciples who have been hiding out for fear that they might get in trouble by the same people who had arrested Jesus. But I also think about what happened when the Black Plague began to descend. And while everybody else was going out to the country to try to get away from people who were sick, it was the Christ followers who had compassion and began to move towards the sick. And where it's kind of like Ebola today, right? We, we take the people who have Ebola and we hide them. We isolate them. Because we don't want to get sick either. We don't want to spread it. Well, in those days, it was the Christians who, rather than running away from people who were sick and dying of the Black Plague, were actually running to those people, picking them up, carrying them into their home, caring for them. Some of them died. Some of the Christians got sick and died, but some of them lived. And when those people who were sick and had been nursed back to health survived and realized these people that they didn't even know had had compassion on them because of what Jesus Christ had done in their heart, guess what? They placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they began to go minister to the sick and the broken. And it continued and it continued and it continued. We are not promised easy, carefree, painless lives. But we are promised that we don't have to walk through the brokenness of this world by ourselves. We're also promised that the brokenness of this world and the pain that we experience does not have to get the last word. God does not simply call the qualified. He qualifies the called. We are unworthy, and yet he has said, I'm calling you into the game. Get out of the stands. Get onto the field. I will help you. I'll be with you. One last thought. I need to look at my notes because quite honestly, I don't want to screw this one up. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes... Uh, sometimes I'm driven by this innate desire to do something monumental, something amazing that will bring glory to God and, and, if I'm being honest, will also bring glory to me. And I think, I'm almost driven by this innate desire to do that that thing that makes people go, wow, if I'm going to sum up Eric Wayman's life, let me tell you this. But in the pursuit of the moment, of of greatness, we can often overlook the gift of ordinary, mundane moments. We can miss the gift of each day, each hour, each moment. And although what God called Joseph and Mary into was monumental from a, a historic standpoint, right? You are going to be the parents to the Messiah. Monumental. However, what that meant was a lifetime of mundane obedience. A lifetime of, well, 
of changing diapers, midnight feedings, scraped knees that you had to clean off. It it meant, Joseph, you're going to have to teach my son about life, about the birds and the bees. You're going to need to teach him how to swing a hammer, how to tie his sandals, how to talk to me. And sometimes our greatest act of worship isn't found in the everyday, or, sorry, I'm going to say that again. Sometimes our greatest act of worship is not found in the moment, in the monumental, but it's found in everyday faithfulness and our ordinary obedience. Sometimes our greatest testimony isn't found in a moment of greatness, but rather in our long obedience in the same direction along a path that's marked with both hardship and joy, moments of sacrifice and moments of blessing. And I just got to say, I'm so grateful that our Father in Heaven is willing to use unworthy vessels to pour out His love. I'm so grateful that He lets people like Joseph and Mary, you and me, participate in bringing about His purpose and His plans in the world. Are we worthy? No. But through Jesus Christ, he has made us worthy. So let's pray. And then we're going to go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you chose Joseph, of all people, to raise your son. I thank you that you use imperfect, flawed people to bring about your purpose and your plans. And this morning, God, we simply want to say, have your way with us. I pray that you would open our eyes to what you're doing in our lives, in our spheres of influence, and that you would show us the ways that you are inviting us to be your representative, your ambassador. God, we don't have the strength in ourselves. Would you walk with us, journey with us, and give us that ability to do what it is you're calling us to do? For your name's sake. Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Hey, we're going to begin like we did last week with